Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. According to WHO, the occurrence of adverse events due to unsafe care is likely one of the 10 leading causes of death and disability in the world. Patient harm is caused by several healthcare issues. Healthcare associated infections occur in 7 and 10 out of every 100 hospitalized patients in high income countries and low middle income countries, respectively. Unsafe surgical care causes complications in up to 25% of patients. Patient harm is additionally caused by unsafe medication practices, unsafe transfusion practices, diagnostic errors, radiation errors, sepsis is frequently not diagnosed early enough, venous thromboembolism is one of the most common and preventable causes of patient harm. But on top of the list are medication errors. Medication errors are a leading cause of injury and avoidable harm in healthcare systems. Globally, the cost associated with medication errors has been estimated at 42 billion US dollars annually. In this episode, you're going to hear from Abdulelah Al Hausawi. He's the ex co founding Director General of the Saudi Patient Safety Center. He advises to several national and international quality and safety organizations and has helped introduce patient safety as a G20 priority in the 2020 G20 of Saudi Arabia. Dr. Al Hausavi is currently part of the WHO's Global Patient Safety Action Plan Task Force. He's a surgeon by background and has been trying to help improve patient safety throughout his career. As he says, if patients were more included in the question about their treatment and their protocols, safety could be improved with patients being the last checkpoint if an error was about to be made. This discussion was part of the discussions of the movie Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? If you haven't seen the movie yet, you can find the link to the movie and the interviews with all the speakers in the show notes. And do browse through other episodes as well by going to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. In autumn, we'll dive into healthcare digitalization across Europe with a series of discussions about the Nordic countries and more. Stay tuned. Subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now, let's move to the discussion with Dr. Al-Hausavi. He starts by explaining five factors that contribute to hindered patient safety. My brother is a pilot and, and I... In a, in a way, I've gotten interested into these industries, the HRO industries, the high reliability organization. So I use not just aviation, but I use nuclear and I use oil and gas 
because when you look at the culture of safety in these industries and you compare that to, to healthcare, you realize what, what the problem is. And, and I've given a, a keynote uh, lecture to, an, on, on a conference in, in Australia, it's the CDIA conference. So today my lecture actually went on and I use five reasons of why we have what I call the implementation gap, because the patient safety movement and the agenda started pretty much globally by 1999, because that, that was the time of the very famous report to Aries Human. And, and that report at that time said that in, in, in the U.S. alone, 44,000 to, uh, 44, to 98,000 Americans die from, from medical errors. Now, of course, we know that the number is much higher, but that report pushed towards like the spark that started the patient safety agenda in the U.S. and, and, and beyond. So fast forward 20 years later, we have done a very good job in bridging the knowledge gap. We know what to do, but then the implementation gap is a problem. Let me give you one example. So the, the World Health Organization started in 2005 with something called the Global Patient Safety Challenges. So in 2005, there was the first Global Patient Safety Challenges, which was a, a very basic thing about hand hygiene. And, and in 2008, there was also the surgical safety and in 2017, there was the medication, the safety medication without harm. And I actually participated. I was part of that team that worked with the WHO uh, on the third global patient safety challenge. But let's go to the first challenge, which is the hand hygiene. So it is clear that the number healthcare associated infections is one of the biggest, one of the big problems of safety in healthcare. And. Evidence is clear that the number one cause of healthcare associated infections is a uh, failure to comply with the hand hygiene, uh, even though that healthcare associated infections kills hundreds of thousands of people throughout the globe. And even though that we know that washing our hands is going to bring down the number very low. And vice versa, if we don't wash our hands, this leads to healthcare associated infections, which could kill patients. And if, if it doesn't kill patients, it does all kinds of harm. In 20, 2018, there was, uh, when they looked at the compliance rate, the best country that was doing nationwide good compliance rate was around 80% and it was Australia, but the average was around 40 not even making, you know, up to 50%. So this is the implementation gap where we have, we know what to do, but we still don't do it. And there are five reasons for the implementation gap. One of them is the, the culture of safety. And this is where we do the analogy between uh, aviation and other industries, other high reliability uh, industries versus safety, uh, versus healthcare. So safety in those, uh, industries is religion and faith safety in, in healthcare is, is far from religion and, and, and the culture is very much dependent on the leadership. So always equated with leadership. So if you have a good culture, it has to do with good leadership and, uh, bad culture 
goes with lack thereof of good leadership. And then you've got the, the second is the, the lack of advocacy. So if you compare the global climate change movement with the global patient safety movement, both are very important. Why one is doing great. The global climate change has a huge advocacy. So now everyone anywhere in the planet is, is aware of the global the climate change, the problem, and we need to do something about it. Now, I think we can follow their footsteps and try to figure out what they did and, and, and how we, how they managed to make this issue a mainstream issue. And, and the third reason of the, the implementation gap is the information asymmetry. So what do I mean by that? When you have a, a, a clinician and a patient, the, the information gap, the, the amount of information that the clinician knows compared to the amount of information that the patient knows, it's, the difference is huge. And that is a recipe for problem in any industry. So many industries actually have worked on trying to make sure that the customers are actually empowered with the right information. The whole idea of the data-driven decision-making and, and empowering the customers with the information. This is a cry for patient and family's empowerment and the whole concept of co-production and, and how you can co-produce safe care and high-quality care at different levels, going from the co-design to the co-delivery to the co-assessment. And then the, the fourth one is the human factors engineering and the ergonomics. So the whole idea of the concept of resilience in healthcare is still sporadic and, and still something that we're experimenting with that that interface is also resilient. How can we make sure that we can catch errors early on without causing harm? So even if we make errors, because we as human beings will make errors, how, how to make sure that we're not making harm. And the fifth one is the fact that currently we're not even using the same taxonomy. So even though that we have ICD, which is a, for a, a international classification of diseases, we don't have ICAE, which is international classification of adverse events. So within the same country, maybe within the same city, you can have two hospitals and everyone is calling the adverse events with different classifications. And if we were to actually have a, a common platform starting from city-wide, the nation-wide, regional-wide, and global-wide. If we have to have a, a, a global learning platform where we share these learning experiences, then the precursor for that is to make sure that we're using the same taxonomy. So we're calling it an orange and an apple. So these are the five reasons, I would say, the five causes of the implementation Gap. If we go to the beginning, why is patient safety your passion? Let's start there. I joined healthcare to, to help people. My brother is a pilot. He works in, in, in aviation. I work in healthcare somehow. And I believe that there is human because we're, we're human beings where we're not perfect. We will make mistakes because we're, we're just not perfect. Somehow. He's in an industry that when he makes mistakes, he doesn't end up crashing the airplane that he flies. And he does because he was put in, a, in an industry that is resilient, in an industry that is 
basically building safety, something that is an, an aspiration to aim for every single day, every minute. Whereas, and that's why aviation is, is the safest industry on the planet. Now, the same almost genetic material. And I work in an industry, but the industry has many challenges where my errors that I make as a human being actually end up harming patients. And unfortunately, as a practicing surgeon and as a practicing clinician, I, I ended up having patients that, that were, were harmed because of the fact that these errors that I made as, as an individual, the system itself did, still did not have the, the way to, to figure out that error, figure out the oversight that, that I had and, and deal with it before harming patients. So that's on one end. Another end, the public service to me is very, you know, admirable. And since which uh, I mentioned the genomics and genetics. So in 2003, the human genome was sequenced for the first time. And we realized that actually you and I and the 7 billion plus out there in the planet share more than 99% of our human genome. So we're almost identical twins. And, and what makes us different is less than 1%. Just keep that in mind. And somehow we focus on that less than 1% than rather than embracing the 99%. Uh, and to me, I view myself as a global citizen. This is a global challenge. So to me, a, 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 a global problem requires global solutions. To me, there's nothing more meaningful and fun than having us trying to figure out a way to prevent harm and, and, and reach zero harm. Saving one life is, is actually something big. How about if we could save millions of lives? Nothing beats that. If we go to the beginning of your medical career, do you by any chance remember what your expectations were? and how that perception or that hope changed over time, if it changed. I, when I, when, when I, I, I decided to go to med school when I was in high school and at that time, and don't ask me why I, I wanted to become an ophthalmologist and, and, and eye doctor. So six years uh, straight from high school and then a year of internship. So throughout my first three, three years. I moved towards, uh, yeah, maybe I would just want to be an internist. And then between the, the transition from basic years into clinical years, I, I, it was just a coincidence that I went and I did a surgical a summer training at one of the hospitals. And then I decided that I wanted to become uh, a surgeon. I worked with the transplant team there and I decided that I, not only I want to become a surgeon, but I want to become a transplant surgeon. And then afterwards, I've done my residency in Nova Scotia, Canada, and then I did my transplant and hepatobiliary fellowship to Mount Sinai in New York City. And that basically, I became a transplant and, and, and a liver surgeon. But my interest in healthcare grew more from just the, the, the micro aspect of it. The, that's the micro, meso, and macro aspect. So the micro is at the, at the bedside the interaction between patients and physicians, and then the meso 
is at the healthcare facility side, that basically the macro is at the kind of the national and the global side. So I became interested in, in, in quality and patient safety. And I became interested in the system aspect of healthcare because it's fascinating. Healthcare is the most complex uh, system created by man. And it has like probably 18, 20 industries in one industry talking about medication safety. And we can talk about what the number of industries that are involved in, in, in medications, the academia side, the clinical side, the biotechnology and human factors and on and on. And how can you bring all that in to work in harmony towards a common, you know, uh, goal? Uh, healthcare systems are still having opportunity to be transformed and, and, and transforming healthcare systems means saving millions of lives, means saving billions of money that can be used to do more good. So you never were disappointed by healthcare? Because sometimes I'm wondering, sometimes students of medicine get disillusioned by the intense workload that they get, the stress, the hours, the mistakes that they see. Did you ever see any medication management related errors and what were the consequences of those? Did, do you have any personal experiences in, about that? Yeah, I'll tell you about some personal experiences and then I tell you uh, from my own practice and then I'll tell you also about some problems that, I, that I'm aware of from other hospitals. I remember one of the interviews with Steve Jobs where he said you really have to, to, to love what you do because otherwise it's very hard. Because Everything, whatever it is, healthcare or, or anything else has difficulties. So if you really don't love it, then when the challenges come in and every, you know, sector, every work has challenges, it becomes very difficult. So I love what I do. And just, just going back to the story, this was very close. So a friend of mine's a mother was a patient of mine and she had, she had a, an abdominal problem and required to have a piece of her large bowel piece of her colon removed. And I, I did that surgery and she was in her seventies, I believe seventies, maybe late seventies, early eighties. And she was in polypharmacy. And one of the medications that she was on was eltharoxine. So it's, uh, basically a hormone for, for patients who that have low thyroid for people that are just not familiar with it. And basically her dose was 25 mics, you know, micrograms of pelteroxin. And at that time, the hospital that I worked in, the medications were actually brought in manually. So one of the junior doctors rewrote, sometimes when you have so many medications, it becomes a mess, so you have to rewrite it. So he rewrote the medications and he just added one zero. So rather than it's 25, it became 250. And a patient that's old, when you're multiplying the medication by a factor of 10, it could have gone into basically uh, heart failure with, with that dose. Who uh, recognized the error? The son, my friend. So it was like, it was a near miss that she almost got the, the wrong dose. And it was the Swiss cheese model where at the very end, thank God, it was uh, recognized and that was a very tough one to, to deal with and hopefully it was avoided. Now, at 
uh, some of the other stories, because I, I, I work also, I have an advisory work with our healthcare accreditation organization in, in, in Saudi. So we, we have information about different hospitals and, and this was the, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. So one of the hospitals had a patient, a young patient, I think 40 years of age who had uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy, basically had his whole gallbladder removed uh, with the laparoscope. And everything went perfectly well from a surgical perspective. And he was in the recovery room. And next to him was an intubated, uh, ventilated patient on a muscle relaxant. He was on uh, brachyronium. And the nurse was going in to, on her way to give that patient the brachyronium. She got distracted. So rather than giving the patient who's intubated, ventilated the recronium, she ended up giving the perfectly healthy 40 years age patient, uh, who had his gallbladder removed a day surgery, recronium. The, 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 the bad part of the story is that patient ended up actually dying. And uh, you could just imagine how horrible his death was because you could, when you can't even call for help because you're paralyzed. I don't know if you saw the movie Awake. It was like about a decade ago or so. So some patients, and this is a phenomenon that is uh, known where some patients under general anesthesia, they sometimes their anesthetic without the anesthesiologist knowing becomes a bit light. So they wake up and they're paralyzed because they're also under general anesthesia. So they can't even move. And some patients actually have PTSD, post-traumatic stress the, the disorders because you're awake but you can't move. So uh, again, that muscle relaxant problem is another one. Now, the one that is also, I think it's worth mentioning is the Dennis Quaid story in 2007 at Cedar Sinai, where he had uh, twin babies and they were giving the wrong dose of heparin, uh, a blood thinner, a uh, thousand times the wrong dose. And not only once, but twice. And, and thank God that they basically survived, but you can imagine the ordeal and, and, and the horror that both parents went through to deal with such a problem. And again, this is a story that is a public record, so we're, we're not, uh, revealing any secrets here, but, but the thing is, if this could happen to Dennis Quaid's twins at Peter Stein, I think basically happened to, to, to anyone. So I think that's the, that, that is in a way, an, an indication that we still have problems and how can we listen to these stories with, with the mindset that is focused on eliminating that preventable harm as we move forward. It's uh what can I say? I didn't expect so many horror stories, or although I was aware of mistakes happening and fatal mistakes happening, but what seems to be an optimistic outlook is the fact that in terms of medication management with technologies and with electronic prescribing, things like illegible prescriptions are no longer a problem. And there's new and new decision support systems that are going in the direction of helping prescribers detect overdoses, detect if there's a clash between two medications. 
So from this perspective, how do you see that medication-related patient safety is improving with technology? I want to say I'm consciously optimistic, and I'll tell you why. Healthcare is developing at a speed, it just lights and the new medications that are coming up, there's actually, they looked into the, the, the medical data and the time it would take for medical data to double. So in, in 1970, I think they, it was estimated that it would take, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years for the medical data to double. In 2018, that number came down to 73 days. So every 73 days, the medical data doubled. And the, what I'm trying to say is with the explosion of this new medications, the biologics, the monoglobal, sorry, monoclonal antibodies, you, you name it, it, it is still, it's a very good technology to have. I think what closes the circle here is the patient. So, and the patient and the family, and I'll tell you why, because let's say that we're prescribing a, a, a paracetamol for a patient and you've got the best electronic health records and you've got the best computerized physician order entry and everything goes well, but then at the time, at the point between the, the dispensing, the transcription and the dispensing of the medication, you could still have an overworked, uh, understaffed unit where an individual nurse just makes the, the mistake. Now, who would be helping us to make sure that we really transform the safety is the patient and family. Because if the patient and family knows that we're not trying to make patients and families clinicians, that's not the, the you know, what, what I'm saying here, but we want to make sure that Patients and families are really integral part of the team. So if the patient knows that, so my treating physician is X, my nurse for this shift is X. I, I have five, six medications. You could be more interested in their names, but even if not, when you're having the medication coming in, you, you want to remind also the nurse, okay, is that the time for my medication? Maybe that pill looked different. What is the need? So trying to educate, empower the patients and their families with the right information. Think about mothers with, with, you know, in pediatric wards, who would be the better kind of help to make sure that harm doesn't happen to those kids rather than the mothers who are very much, are very keen on making sure that their kids are not harmed. When you listen to many of the, of the stories, and, and again, I left so many stories untold. Some of them are public records. I talked about Helen Hatskill, who's done a great work in, in, in patient safety. Her son was, I think, 13 or 14, died from, from a medication error because he was giving a, 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 a dose of an adult and a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory dose of an adult ended up having a perforated duodenal ulcer. And you talk to Helen, who's a good friend, and, and, and again, she mentions it in, in, in the uh, video, in the in YouTube, it's YouTube, you can just Google it. And she has been saying that, she's been saying that there's something wrong, there's something wrong. And every time she was just brushed aside. So imagine if we actually integrate patients and families in the cold delivery piece. So it's like another check, the final check. 
imagine what would happen. Now, I'm not saying that technology is not going to help us. There, there's also the technology that tells us even the compliance with medications at home, like the technology is getting there. But what I'm saying is without bringing the, the, these two key stakeholders together, if we bring patients and families and empower them, we don't want them to become another doctors or nurses. We just want them to be educated about their own disease, about the treatment plan. So if there's another medication, you could just ask me. So an overworked nurse who's basically just distracted does not end up harming the, the patient or, or the family member because we have someone who's, who's, who's that part of the team. So I think that's what I'm trying to say. I think the technology is great. I think with time and getting also IoT, the internet of things and AI, many things would, would, would help us, but that ergonomics, that human factor engineering piece, I think this, it would very much benefit from empowering patients and families. I still want to stick just with the technology a little bit. Now, if I consider what exists in order to prevent medication errors is the concept of the closed loop medications. So in essence, the prescriber prescribes something with the help of the electronic system, gets warned if a dose is too high, then that receipt or that prescription goes into the pharmacy. There's a robotic system that dispenses the right dose of the medication. And then it's taken in a cabinet to the ward and the nurse needs to scan with the barcode the patient and the medication just to make sure that the right uh, drug goes to the right patient. What are your experiences with those kinds of systems? Do you see them in your practice? And to which extent, perhaps, is the cost of this solution making the closed-loop medication management unattainable for healthcare institutions? We really have a lot of technology by today. So one of my main questions is that, is this technology not being used? Is it too expensive? What's the problem that we're not exploring the potential of it? As you mentioned, I think I and, and continues to actually do uh, a great job of improving medication safety. As you alluded to, I think uh, cost is going to be uh, a, a limiting factor here for many not even just low and middle income countries, but even uh, high income countries, because healthcare is becoming more and more expensive. So I think if that technology exists, we need to think about it in the entire system that has that leadership that is very much focused on zero harm and promoting the, the safety culture, even at the low middle income country settings where on an, on an annual basis, 2.6 million people die from, from basically unsafe care. And there are 134 million adverse events in low middle income countries. It, 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 it is, we, we have to think of uh, how these solutions would, would be helpful, would be helping us. Many of these countries don't even have still the means to roll out and implement electronic health records because of the cost factor. So I think technology is great. Now, who knows, maybe with time, we will see a drop in the, in some of these uh, technologies and which would make it more available for low income setting as well as not just high income setting. 
do you think that could change if the patient safety issue became a priority? Because, for example, we do see in the NHS that uh, the country is highly investing in the adoption of technologies to improve patient safety, to improve medication safety. At the same time, every time you talk about medication-related errors, there's estimates or studies showing the financial cost of these. So according to WHO, the cost of medication-related harm is 42 billion US dollars every year. And in the NHS, supposedly the cost of errors related to medications is estimated at 98 million pounds. So on the one hand, we've got these huge estimates about the costs of medication-related errors. So why is the investment part that would actually decrease these costs such a problem? Again, that's a very good question. And, and, I, and I think that was one of the motives behind us last year pushing to, to put patient safety on the G20 agenda during the, uh, the Saudi presidency. And we actually commissioned a study that by the OECD to look into the economics of patient safety. And again, it showed that more than, more than 13% of the health expenditure on, in, in the healthcare system is wasted due to unsafe care. When a country has, when a citizen is harmed, not only that, the, the country actually loses twice because not only that you have to treat them, you also lost their contribution and productivity to, to the, to the GDP. Currently the G20 countries alone have spent, I don't know how many trillions uh, on, of dollars on, on COVID alone. So if you grab the attention of decision makers and policymakers to the challenges of patient safety and medication safety, then yeah, that would be one of the uh, strategies to try to get more funding for this. I hope you're enjoying the discussion with Dr. Al-Hausavi so far. If you're a medical doctor from the US, you can actually learn credits for your continuous medical education by listening to this show. Find more information in the show notes. Now let's return to the discussion. You are certified in the US, in Canada, you're now working in the UAE. Can you make any um, comparisons between the systems or did you work in all three countries? And like, what kind of differences did you see? If there's anything that's relevant to mention. I work in Saudi Arabia, not the UAE, but basically, yes, I, I, I have, so I'm Canadian and American board certified. So I practiced in Nova Scotia, Canada for, for a number of years as a surgical resident. And I also did my transplant and hepatobiliary fellowship at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. And I've been working for the past more than uh, 10 years in, in, in Saudi Arabia at, 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 different hospitals, both academic uh, medical centers, as well as government hospitals, as well as private hospitals. So I've been in, in different healthcare systems and it is very much clear to me that the, the challenges of patient safety and medication safety has nothing to do with geography because in a country like the U.S. and Canada, the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer is uh, medical errors. 
in a country like the UK, 150 preventable death happens every week. These are advanced and top healthcare systems. And I talked about the 134 million adverse events that takes place in low middle income countries, which is causing 2.6 million deaths in, in low middle income countries. So, so in a way, this is not a high income country's problem, nor low middle income country's problem. This is a healthcare system problem. It's a global problem and the way to deal with it is to deal with the causes of why we, we are where we are, which I mentioned at, at the beginning, things around the safety, uh, culture, thing, things around the human factors and ergonomics, empowering patients and families and using uh, common uh, taxonomy and the advocacy piece. We really have to keep pushing the envelope and, and making sure that this issue becomes mainstream, these numbers are just the people that are become aware of those. And if people in many countries realize that healthcare is not as safe as we think it is, and if people realize that there are potential harms, uh, then they're going to push those healthcare systems towards finding a solution. And if there's a will, there's a way. So I think, again, that, that would be my thinking of how to deal with this, it, it requires these kind of concerted global efforts, technology, leadership, empowering patients and families, getting us to, to, to work together. And I think we can very much in our lifetime, see transformation of the safety of medications and patient safety in general. Is there anything that you can mention? that you saw that worked really well in improving medication-related patient safety? I know we were talking about the culture, but I, I truly believe, when, and the record is out there, places like Intermountain Medical Center in, in, in the U.S., places like Cleveland Clinic. These are some of the places and stories that, I, that, that I'm aware of where the, these different pillars or pieces of the puzzle, if you will, but it starts with the right leadership. You really have to have the leadership in the healthcare center, in the medical center, in the hospital, in the healthcare system to say that safety is a priority for us and zero harm is our goal because all these other industries that we've mentioned, that was the beginning. It's like creating that urgency that we really have to have zero harm. 10% is unacceptable. So I think to have that leadership to really push the, the agenda forward, that's going to then be coupled with having the, the right technology that would help us. And I would say the right processes. So it's not just the technology because the technology would be integrated into, into processes. And depending on your financial means, you, you figure out whatever processes that would work for you, bring the clinician and patients and families to work together to co-produce this high quality and safe care, empower patients and families, make sure that we listen to them more. I think if we manage to do that, in addition to having incentives for risk and innovation and innovation and how we can actually push the envelope to improve safety because with, as we're doing that, we also need to keep pushing the agenda of innovation 
And, and I think with time, these different components, I think would, would help us to reach towards zero harm, which I think should be the goal of any healthcare system, any hospital and any patients and, and families. I want to stop with the leadership part for uh, a little bit uh, longer, and that's going to be the last question, I think. But I would assume that every healthcare leader is aware that patient safety is important. And if nothing else, especially in the US, you want to avoid mistakes and patient harms due to the litigation issues. So what is it about leaders that are successful in driving the patient safety agenda? Is it, do, are they charismatic? Do they have a specific approach towards the topic? Because it's, I'm always fascinated about things that seem straightforward, but are actually really difficult to master. Things like how to manage expectations, how to get buy-in of people to adopt technologies. I can list the things that you need to do, but how to actually do it is like a secret sauce that it's all, that is almost impossible to describe sometimes. So from that perspective, I'm wondering why are those leaders different than other leaders that are not successful in getting the culture to change? I would, I would break it down into the will and skill. So yeah, you want to have the will and you want to have the skill. And I think, I don't want to say that people, leaders that are not doing well in, in safety are intentionally ignoring that. It's just, they're not putting it as at the top. And I think if you, in, in a way, if you there's now this, it used to be the triple aim and now it's the quadruple aim. So the quadruple aim should be the, the direction of any healthcare system, which is better health for the population at large, and then better care and experience of patients throughout the, the, when the, the episode of care. And these, the third one is doing it at a lower cost. And the fourth one is satisfied and safe healthcare workers. So if you put that as your true north and in, in that aspect, putting patient at the basic minimum, sorry, putting patient safety as the basic minimum, which is the, 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 the having preventable harm or zero harm, then that would be in my mind that the will, having the, the, the will to do it. And if you have the will to do it, then the skill comes in. And everyone does things differently. And there are tried, tested and tried aspects, but part of the skill of doing it is the processes, the technologies, the pathways, etc. But keep in mind, we've been trying at this, even people that are very much committed to improving patient safety, they've been doing most of that. And I think the element that is was left behind is empowering patients and, and, and families. So the co-production piece, I think if we do all the good practices and improve the culture, etc., and bring patients and families. So the definition of patient safety is the absence of harm. And it is very difficult to, to apply patient safety as a one size fits all. So we really have to personalize it. And the way we personalize it is we personalize it along the 
that, that the patient's conditions, either within the patient, the inpatient setting or the outpatient setting. And we empower patients and families with the right information. They can help us help them. And, and, and if we do that, I think then we would see the transformation. So it's the will and skill, but the, the, the thing that would bring this forward is to personalize safety and, and, and make sure that we empower patients and families and we co-produce uh, safe and, and, and high quality care. As patients, I think that's the catch. How do you turn on the skepticism or carefulness switch when you're in an environment that you basically trust completely because it has such an authority in the perception of patients? I think trusting is important and I, I think it's very important to keep that trust. But I'm telling you as a clinician who's been in healthcare for some time, the only way to really do this, we, we can't do it alone from the provider side for every patient. Okay? We know that every patient and families do not want to be harmed and they want to be, they want to be treated and they want to be treated with respect. So patient experience, patient care, uh, patient safety. And so we, the only thing that we need to do is to really give them the tools and the means to be helpful team members. So that, that mindset has to change from them to be really be just passive participants. That doesn't work. Treating patients as passive recipients of care does not work. So we can do whatever we can do with the technology. We can do everything. The only way that we can make sure that this individual in this hospitalization is treated well and leaves with no harm is to make sure that we engage them and we engage their families and tell them how they can help us help them. I think that's the only thing. So it's not about making people uh, lose trust or making people afraid. It's just to make sure that to tell them that's the, the missing piece. and. Whatever we can do, unless we bring that missing piece together, we're not going to be able to, to really reach dear harm for every patient. That's the thing, mm. one or two patients, the goal is you want to have it for every patient. So when, imagine if we, at the beginning of the care, we co-produce even, we ask patients and families, so what are your goals of the treatment? Because patients and families have goals of treatment. Clinicians have goals of treatment that are more clinical. If someone wants to have a knee replacement, their goals of treatment is maybe to walk again or to do whatever. The surgeon's goal is certain things that have to do with, with the surgery itself. So how can we have a document that put these goals of treatment together and then to say, okay, for us to reach that goal, for you to have these three, four, five days of admission and then go home safely and go to almost the goal of the treatment that we, we just discuss together, here's what we're going to do. And here's what we want you to do. And it could be as simple as if you have any questions, please, and concerns, just let us know. These are the things to keep your eye on. It, we, again, we don't want to overwhelm patients and families because they, they're already overwhelmed, but we will not be able to reach their harm without empowering patients and families. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. And if you have a minute, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. 
You can also do so by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform on your device. Stay tuned. <laughs>